All right, hey, if you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Nehemiah chapter 10. That's where we are today. And as you're flipping there, let me just mention a couple things to you that uh, I need to tell you about. Uh, number one is that uh, this Sunday night, tonight, at the point, I don't think it's in the loop, but tonight um, we're going to gather together, just whoever wants to come, we're going to gather together tonight at the, at the point at 5 o'clock from about 5 to about 6 or 6.15 just to pray and ask God to help us. Um, we do that every now and again, uh, try and do it once a month or once every couple months. And uh, tonight I just feel, uh, in fact lately, I feel like God has been stirring me and hopefully us to really lean forward into pursuing God and not getting in a rut as a group of people or as individuals and asking God to, to stir up, to kind of break up fallow ground in our lives. And so uh, I, I would encourage anybody. I know that, um, you know, sometimes... Well, we have, those of us that have kids, maybe a, one of the parents might have to trade and come. But if you can make it out tonight to the point, which is our office complex in town, it's right next to Mellow Mushroom in that little shopping center there. We're going to pray from 5 to 6, 6.15 or so, and then the middle school kids are going to come in. Listen, we don't, we don't put you on the spot. I, you know, if you've had a bad experience at a church prayer meeting where, like, you know, somebody attacked you with a tambourine or called on you or something like that. Um, or, you know, you got put on the spot, kind of like the, you know, the Christian prayer circle where you all get in a circle and, you know, somebody prays and then they squeeze your hand and then you got to say something, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't do that. And, and, or it's like the competitive prayer where somebody prays and then, you know, they've got some need and then the guy next to him has got to one up the prayer request. Just, uh, just, we're not going to, look, we're just, we're going to try and be as raw and as biblical and as New Testament as we can. We're going to have some things to pray for tonight. And uh, I'd love for you to come and just lean forward into the power of the Trinity with us. And on that note, if you got my email uh, at the beginning of the week, um, I feel like the Lord is putting on my heart to lead us as a church in a time of seeking God through fasting and prayer at the beginning of this new year. And so in January, and you'll hear more about this, we'll be giving you some instruction and, and uh, on how to go about it and and uh, we're going to talk about it a lot over the coming next two months. But I feel like God is leading us to do a Daniel fast together. And if you've never heard of a Daniel fast, that is comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel in the first chapter where Daniel, along with his three Hebrew friends, said no to King Nebuchadnezzar's delicacies. And they said that let us just eat vegetables and fruits for 10 days and see if our appearance is not even stronger than that of those who would eat this the king's delicacies. They were saying no to that, that culture's food as a testimony that God would sustain them. And so this January, we're going to do a Daniel fast together. I want to encourage us to do a Daniel fast together as a church to seek God for personal renewal, for personal and corporate vision, for blessing. But mostly, this is not a lot of times fasting in Christian circles. I think unintendedly is sort of is sort of spoken of as kind of like, oh, we'll do this, and now God is obligated to do this, as if God can be manipulated. He can't be. What, the reason I think we need to fast is because we need to be reminded as people that the things of this world cannot and will not ever sustain us, and we need more, far more hunger for God. And so we're going to fast uh, this January, there will be different levels if you want to just do it for a couple of days or 10 days or maybe even the whole month of January. And I know a whole month without a steak 
causes some of you to shake <laughs> or chicken or whatever, but, um, but we're going to have different levels. So I'm just letting you know that so that we can um, kind of get ready for that. And you'll be hearing more. We'll do some teaching about that and give you some diet and recipe suggestions on vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Well, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, today uh, is, is, I think, a really <clears throat> one of those type of chapters. And if you are new here or you're relatively new, we have been working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the reason we've been doing this is because, number one, it's the Bible. And we like to preach out of the Bible here. And secondly, is that I think that the story of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah has many parallels to us as a young church trying to build a city or a church, a a place where God can work. Because the whole story of Nehemiah, in fact, the whole story of the Old Testament is that God is reconciling a people to himself so that through these people... He could bless all the peoples of the earth. Specifically in the Old Testament, it was the ethnic nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews. And so he is working through these people, forming these people, so that he can, through these people, bless all the people of the earth. And the story of the Old Testament is a series of rebellious um, uh, acts by the people of Israel and then God wooing them back by his grace and then calling them finally to this promised land where they build the city of Jerusalem and they build the temple as God has told them to do so. And then through again their rebellion, they get overtaken by a foreign pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Assyrians. And the city of God and the temple of God is destroyed. And so God can't really work through these people anymore because they're scattered. And so he's gathering them back together and rebuilding this city of God so that through this place, this place on the ground, through these people, God would bless all the nations of the earth. Because although God has a special relationship with the Jewish people and still does to this day, it's never just been about one people. It is that he's been forming a people so that through those people he could bless all the nations of the earth. Likewise, he's doing the same for us now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. We are not just Jews ethnically, but we're Gentiles and and Italians and Europeans and Africans and Latinos and Caucasians and Californians and all sorts of different type of ethnicities that God is gathering together so that through us as a church, he can bless all the peoples of the earth. But yet we're broken down, we're scattered, and we're confused, and we're rebellious. So we are just like the people in Nehemiah. And so what's happened up to this point as we've been working our way through Nehemiah is that God has raised up this leader, Nehemiah. He's also raised up a few others named Ezra and Zerubbabel. And they have, they have got God's people back to this promised city, this promised land, and they've rebuilt it. They've rebuilt the temple and they've rebuilt the wall. And now they are beginning the internal reformation of their hearts so that, so that they are the people of God that God can work through and bless all the peoples of the earth. And so they have done that. And we read um, last week about how God caused great repentance to come across, uh, on the people. And now we're going to read about the result of that repentance. And this is an important lesson before we read chapter 10 is that as the people read the word of God, as we read last week in Nehemiah chapter 9, and then they, they, they great repentance swept across the people. 
repentance always produces, if it's real, it should produce some measure of life change. There should be some, some fruit that comes out of God speaking to us. It can't just be, oh, I feel kind of guilty or convicted or like I should do something different. And then it kind of goes away and I go back to doing what I usually do on Monday. When God gets a hold of a people, it will always produce some measure of life change and difference in how they actually go about living. And that's what we see happen in Nehemiah chapter 10. So let's read. Actually, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38 because it's really the beginning of this segment. And you know that when the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament wrote these letters, they didn't have chapters and verses in there. They just wrote it like we would write a letter. And then when it was translated, in fact, the the group that did the King James translation, they put the chapter and verse designations in there so that it would be much easier for us to find where we're reading in the Bible. But, and they did a, a really a spectacular job on the whole. But there were a few instances where they would start a chapter and a verse where it, where it didn't really make much sense, and this is one of them. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 30. Before I do that, let me, let me pray and ask God to help us. Lord, um, today as we, as we open up your book, I, I pray, God, that just this very practical and simple story of how these people went through tremendous repentance and conviction in the previous chapter and now go about ordering their lives in such a way, I pray that you would help us bridge the cultural gap. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not farmers, and we don't, we don't uh, have to give our grain offerings and our tithes of our fruits and our crops to you. But, Lord, you do, just as you called these Old Testament Jewish people, you call us to give all of our lives and to live in such a way that it reflects the glory of Jesus. So help us make that leap into our culture. And then, God, as we're opening up this book, we're so mindful that, gosh, we're not in a vacuum here. There are billions of other people, millions of other people in this world that are, are learning, loving, and worshiping Jesus. I specifically pray for the other churches in our area that love Jesus of all different denominations. I pray for the Baptist churches. I pray, God, for this little church down the road, Mountain Hill Baptist. Bless them, God. Bless those folks. Pray for, yes, last night as we did the wedding ceremony in St. Mark, I pray for that great church and, and Pastor Ashley Randall, who I had the privilege to meet a week or so ago. I thank you for that brother, and I pray a blessing over him and his church and the Methodists. I pray for the Presbyterians, and I pray for Bill Douglas at St. Andrews. They've been so kind to us to give us use of their facility on several occasions. Bless those folks, God. Let the river of, of God flow out on that place. God, I pray for the Pentecostal churches in our area. Thank you, Lord, for their vibrancy and their, and their heart and their fervency. Would you bless the assemblies of God and the church of God? Bless them, God. I pray for them. Lord, I pray for my brother Marlon Scott, who's the pastor of Emmanuel Christian Community Church, ministering primarily to the African-American community. God, would you bless him? Would you cause a revival to break out in his church? Would the wind of the Holy Spirit blow through that place? God, for the new churches that are starting out, for Jimmy McElrath and the Ridge, God, would you bless him? For Jeff Murphy at my church, would you bless him? For my dear friend, they're not so new, but for my dear friend Keith Cowart and Christ Community, who've been around for about 10, 11 years now, getting ready to, to build their building, God, would you bless them? God, would you pour out your spirit on the Chattahoochee Valley and on us today? So that we wouldn't be Bible Belt religious people, but that we would be stirred, awakened, fervent.
Christians on a mission for the king. Help us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nehemiah 9, 38. Just going to make some points, and then I got one overarching point to make to you today. Just one. In fact, I'm going to give it to you up front. Let's do it that way. Here's the big idea today. If you could rock that out up there. Here's the big idea. When we live lives of joyful interdependence, it points people to Jesus. The whole point today is that Jesus has died on the cross, not only to bring us when previously we were far from God, not only to bring us close to God in fellowship with him, but also with each other. And that when we live obligated, interdependent, interconnected lives, where we actually need each other and know each other and do stuff with one another outside of an hour and a half on Sunday, it does something beautiful to the world. It reflects the glory and the aroma and the beauty and the interdependence of the Trinity. And people are drawn to it. They're drawn to it. So that's all I got today. All right, good. All right, but I'm going to read the chapter anyway. You're like, oh, yeah, we're out of here early. No, 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 no. Nehemiah 9:38. Okay, so they went through this great repentance, right? I mean, Ezra and the Levites read the book of the law, and it caused such angst in their hearts. They're like, oh, we're so far from this. And then all the leaders of the different households stood up and they, and they made a covenant. And in verse 38, chapter 9, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so before we get into this, it's important that we kind of do a little bit of work on what a covenant is. Because that's not really a word we use too much in American culture today. We kind of think more in terms of contract where there are terms of a contract that you can get out of, or you know, you think a lot of times of a coach you know, that buys his way out of a contract or a player that gets traded. Covenant is not like that at all. The biblical idea of a covenant, there's really two of them. Number one is the covenant between, man and, uh, between God and man, and that's the covenant that God makes with us in Christ, that it's not based on our works, that God has entered into a relationship with us where he calls us, he does the work, and, and then he, he, he promises to sustain the work. But the covenant that we're talking about here is a covenant between man and man, where the, the Israelites are making it amongst themselves. And you ever heard of that phrase, we cut a covenant amongst each other? The reason they use that word, or we say we cut a covenant, because literally what, what they would do when people would enter into a covenant, and this is a little, a little graphic, but they would take a animal, usually a cow or a steer, and they would literally cut the animal. They would, of course, sacrifice the animal, and they would cut the carcass of the animal in half, and they would lay it on each side. So they would cut this, this bull in half and lay half of the carcass over there and half of the carcass over there. And then the two people that were entering into a covenant together would walk through the middle of these two halves of the slain, sliced in two animal. And as a symbol, they would walk through and they would say that we are cutting a covenant together. And if one of us should break this covenant, then this is what will happen to you. That's how serious they took covenants. It's not like, oh, you can, you know, on the ninth year, we'll buy you out and maybe trade you to the Dodgers. No, it wasn't that type of contract. It was, if you break this covenant, then may you be cut. May you be cut in half. And if I break this covenant, may I be cut in half. That's how serious they took 
relationship. And that's what these people are doing. They're saying, we're taking what God has put on our hearts so serious that we're not just saying, hey, we're going to do a little bit better and join a small group or sign up for three months for the greeter team. We're going to enter into a covenant together. Wow. I mean, this is heavy, heavy. And this is what they say. Now we've got 50-something names again for 27 verses. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to read them all. Let's go. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sarai, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Cherem, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, thank you, Ginnathon, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Medjamin, Messiah, Bilgai, Shemai, these are the priests and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benu of the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelatai, Pelai, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Benuni, ben, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunny, there he is again. Again, I hope he was tough in middle school. <laughs> Bunny, As, Asgad, Bebe, and her kids, no, Bebe, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atter, Hezekiah, Azur, ha, ha, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Heref, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshazabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanon, Aniah, Hosea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Masai, got a little ahead of myself there, Masai, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Karam, Baina. Yeah. Thank you. Here's a little observation here. 57 names I think I counted sometime this week as I was reading through this. These were men who were willing to put their name on a list. They weren't ninjas. They didn't have hoods on and sneak in and out of stuff. And they they stood up and said, this is my gig. These are my people. This is who I am. I'm with these guys. Yeah, Bob over there is weird. This guy over here believes something a little goofy. This joker over here never returned to my mule and I'm still mad about it. This guy over here, his punk son, wears his jeans around his ankles, hangs out at the law at the mall and calls my daughter and I don't want him to even around her. This guy over here sinned against me over there and, and but these are my people. This is who I am. This is my posse. This is what I This is what I do. These are who I run with. These are men who put their name on a list. In an imperfect world with an imperfect community where things are jacked up. Give us men who stand up and say, my name is such and such. And I'm with them. In their imperfection. In my timidity. In both of our sin. I'm with them. Men who stand up and let themselves be counted. Who make themselves accountable to something bigger than themselves. Oh, that 
We could stop right there. But we won't. Let's go. 28. And we'll move quickly through this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Remember, you know, this notion about separating ourselves. I think this is really important because it's particularly um, important here in the fundamentalist South where we kind of like to define ourselves a lot of times as Christians by basically we've boiled it down to, you know, not using certain cuss words, not going to rated R movies and, you know, not drinking, or at least when other people can see us. And that's not, uh, by the way, that was, that was intended to be a little convicting there. The, 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 the point is that's not Christianity, right? Like God doesn't want us to, in this instance, he is calling the Jewish people to separate themselves from these pagan cultures because these pagan Gentile people were worshiping all sorts of crazy false gods. And what was happening was, was the Jewish people, and this is really prominent in the book before in Ezra, they're allowing their sons and daughters to marry these foreign cultures with these false gods. And instead of influencing these foreign cultures, these foreign cultures with their false gods were influencing the Jewish people and were diluting the, the fidelity or the faithfulness of their worship of the one true God. And so sometimes now in the, in the 21st century as Christians, we sort of overreact to this and say, well, we've got to separate ourselves from culture, when in reality, God doesn't really want us to separate from culture. He just wants us to remain pure and holy and then go into culture and, and, and let us and our faith in Christ have an influence on culture rather than culture influencing us. And so I'm not saying that's an endorsement to, to, to go sin, but what I'm saying is, is let's not be scared little bunker foxhole Christians who are, who are scared of, of, you know, certain songs or, you know, certain types of places. We've got, we got to go into those places with the holiness of Christ. Have you ever seen that movie, The Village? It's one, it's, I think it's my favorite. Is that funny? Uh, uh, I think I've talked about it before. In this movie, The Village, I think, I think every person in this room should watch The Village by that Indian director, M. Night Shyamalan. I think I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but um, in this movie, The Village, it is a beautiful, I think, picture and really a, a sad picture about how the church oftentimes reacts to the world. And I'm about to blow it for you. I'm going to tell you the story. So in this, in this movie, these people are living in modern day times and they're disgusted with the degradation of society and so they decide to live as a little like encampment of people and they raise their children and the movie starts and they're kind of like it feels like puritan colonial america back in the 1700s and they're they're living in this way and and they they've separated themselves from society but you don't know that they've separated themselves from modern society and then they send one of their daughters out because one of the young men in the in the in the community got sick and so they send this blind daughter out through the woods to go get some uh antibiotics and she she climbs this wall and they've orchestrated this this culture amongst their young people the adults have that that if you go into the woods there's there's these monsters that will get you and all of this is a hoax and she goes through the woods to get this antibiotics and there's a whole lot more to it but she goes over this wall and then all of a sudden you see a car go by and the whole movie you've been thinking that they were in the 1700s like puritan um 
America, and all of a sudden you realize that it's a big hoax, that the, that the parents have secluded themselves from culture because they were so scared of what influence the culture would have on their kids. But now that they needed some technology in the culture, they sent out this blind daughter to go get some antibiotics. And that's the way the church is, is we're like hunkered down and we talk about, you know, culture like it's going to, like it's some Ebola virus that is going to eat us. Well, if we're not holy and if we're not living right, it will. But the virus of the grace of Jesus is far stronger than any broken thing in this culture. And we are called to be a missionary people. The whole point of why God is forming the Jewish people as a nation in the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God is not so that they would hunker down and retreat, but so that they would purify themselves and go out that's a big right on i don't know how else to say it i mean yeah my voice is cracking is that the problem okay come on let's go so we're supposed to separate ourselves in a sense but in a sense we're supposed to go go so they separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of god their wives their sons their daughters all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers their nobles and listen to this this is how serious they took it They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So that's that's talking about the covenant. They're saying, hey, this is so serious that if we if we pollute ourselves with the culture of the false gods of the pagans, then it's not just Johnny. Come on. You shouldn't have done that. It's it's look, uh, may you be cursed if you if you defile yourself in that way pretty strong verse 30 we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or or take their daughters for our sons verse 31 and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the sabbath day to sell we will not buy from them on the sabbath or on a holy day and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt now we're about to get into a portion here the rest of this chapter is pretty specific about their agricultural society but let me mention here just one thing that that they what's going on here is they have decided that they've been mixing with the world around them so much that they were forsaking god's sabbath law and before we end this nehemiah series we're going to talk about the importance of the sabbath and how we as an american culture have completely disregarded that and how honestly it wreaks havoc on us we are the busiest most overconnected, underrested, unable to connect with God people because we go 24-7. We, we're going to talk about that later. I mean, keeping the Sabbath, and I'm not talking about technically Saturday, Friday, sundown to Saturday, sundown. I'm not talking about the technicality, but the principle of Sabbath rest, rest is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. I mean, it's one of the ten. It's, God didn't just say, yeah, don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't steal. And if you get around to it, you know, rest. I mean, he, look, some of us will break down physically, will have heart attacks, will not have healthy lives. Our marriages will not be what they are simply because we do not rest and connect with God on a regular pattern. We're going to talk about that. But what God is saying here to these people is that he is saying that on this Sabbath, they do no business. Now, if you've spent 140 years, which is the time they've been in this captivity with the Babylonians and then the Persians, building your businesses based on seven days of commerce, and now there's this reform in the community, and they're saying, hey, we're going to cut out one-seventh of our profits because we don't want you to do business on Sundays. 
I mean, that's going to affect you. That's going to affect you. And, 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 and the point is, is that when you're living in a way where you're responding to the way God has called you to live, it will, to some degree, put us at odds or force us to sacrifice, to some degree, what we could get otherwise. But here's the important issue, is ultimately, we must know that God's way for us is ultimately far better than selling ourselves out down some worldly mindset. I heard a couple months, or about a month ago or so, um, uh, you know, this is the land of Chick-fil-A, is it not? I mean, I mean, where would we be in this culture without Chick-fil-A? And I heard the CEO of Chick-fil-A at a, a forum here in Columbus about a month ago, and he talked about their decision to not open on Sundays. And let's all admit it. Sometimes, I mean, you know, we're all for it. Like, yeah, we're all for that. We're Christians. But don't sometimes when you drive by Chick-fil-A on Sunday, you'd be like, come on, man. <laughs> I just wish you were open. I mean, just open for the Christians, or like we could all have cards or something. But, but, no, but he said something really, really interesting. He said that, like, they get consultants in, and they're like, man, you guys are doing a great job running this company. It's just a model. He says, but seriously, guys, come on, really? I mean, why don't you open on Sundays? That's insane. And he said something that I think is really... is. Uh, at this point this scripture is making he said we realize that yeah we could go for a little extra money for one extra day but we would actually be losing in fact we think that when we live according to this principle that God has laid out that it actually causes us to be more productive in fact more productive than we would be in seven days more productive in six days than we would be in seven But the point is, is that when you're making a decision to change your way of life and go against the grain that you've gone for 141 years as these people have, it will cause conflict and pain and it will make people look at you and scratch your head and say, huh? So none of us are, okay, so now let's get down to our level. None of us are are, uh, Jewish farmers and none of us are the CEO of Chick-fil-A. But we are upper, upper class middle people who could choose to buy maybe, you know, a lower brand of car, could maybe choose to buy our clothes at Kohl's. Granted, sometimes a button's missing and one sleeve's longer than the other, but (laughs) we could choose to, like, we could choose to not get in that rat race of consumeristic economic gain that ultimately when we get there, it never really satisfies anyway. And it reflects something of Christ, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I tell you, I feel very convicted about this. Jennifer and I, I'm just going to tell you straight up. I'm not going to try and tell you something and not, not, not live up to this. Jennifer and I keep having babies. <laughs> um, we're not having another one. This is not an announcement of us being pregnant. <laughs> but um, we, had, we, we uh, had our fourth child a couple of years ago. And we um, wouldn't trade him for the world. In fact, if we were younger, we'd keep, we'd keep having babies. At least I would want to keep having babies. But we, we, we bought a house um, in response to our fourth child because the house that we built when we first moved back into town in 1998 was getting a little cramped. And we, I think we just got caught up in that, well, let's just kind of get more space. And now we're in a house. It's a great house. We love it. But it's, it probably wasn't the wisest economic thing for us to do to order our lives for biblical health for the long run. And now I think God is really pushing on us with his Holy Spirit saying, you know, 
you know, you're going to learn something from this, and it probably wasn't the wisest decision, so you need to downgrade. And it's okay if, you know, if, if your kids need to be a little cramped, if you're all t- on top of each other, but live in such a way that really lets the glory of Christ reflect through you because you don't just need more stuff and more square footage and more rooms. And so we learned a painful, painful lesson, and so we're going to sell this house in the lowest market ever in the history of real estate. <laughs> but it's going to be for our good and our joy. And so that, that's an example, right? Um, it, we could roll out a million examples. All right. Verse 32. Listen to these words. They take on there's this powerful word that says obligation. We live lives of obligation. Verse 32. We'll go through this pretty quickly because not many of us are farmers. But just think about this important thing here. These people, here's, here's, here's the overarching point as I read through this pretty quickly and then we're going to end. There's nothing that the greatness of the work of Jesus on the cross does not touch. He doesn't just save us so that we can secure an eternity and then kind of basically do and live how we want to live for the next 40, 50, 60 years. But God calls us to live lives of joyful interconnectedness and interdependence so that our lives together as Christians, as humble Christians, as a humble little city of God connected with thousands of other cities of God, in other words, churches, it causes us to live in such a way that it reflects God's glory to the world and points people to Jesus. And so we don't have crops. And by the way, this is one of those verses that a lot of people, um, a lot of prosperity or people that are trying to get your money will take and say, this means you should give. And I probably have overreacted to some of the stuff, you know, where preachers always get want you to give money. Um, I'm not that guy, probably to your detriment. In fact, we've been a church for over four years, and I've preached on money like twice. And this is one of those, we could read it, and it's going to talk about tithing and giving stuff to the house of the Lord. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to beat your head over the, the, over, over the bat saying you need to give and you know all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, look, if you're not giving, if you're not being generous with your money financially, um, you know, come on, man. Let, let the Holy Spirit convict you. Read uh, the article we have on our website about what we believe about generosity, tithing, and giving. And then let the Spirit of God lead you. And so um, so I'm not going to go down that road. And then at the end of this, I'm not going to like, pass the plates one more time, brother, you know, or anything like that. You know, it's not, I'm not going to roll out a thermometer and say, now we're going to start the building fund. I mean, it's just, no. But I'm going to actually take I'm going to blow it up to something bigger than just money. Like our whole lives, our whole lives. So let me read and then we'll be done. Verse 32. This word obligation. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, verse 34, the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Verse 35, here's that word again. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons. And of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, 
to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring Levite, to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. The Levites being the tribe of God's people, one of the twelve tribes of Israel who were the priests. Verse 38, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the tithes shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Notice it does not say, and when you do this, God will bless you. <laughs> As if you know, Jesus is up there dangling some carrot saying, if I can just get him to give 10%, then I can bless him. Come on. What, what's going on here is so much bigger than that. And this is back to our big idea, if you could put that up on the screen. Is that God calls us. To live in such a way that when we live lives of joyful interdependence, it points people to Jesus. It points people to Jesus. But none of this matters, friends, without the cross. None of this matters without the cross. Here's what what the cross has done. Ephesians 2 speaks of this, and it says that Jesus has come, and through his work, he has torn down the middle wall that separates us, us and God. He's torn down the sin. He's torn down the self-reliance. He's torn down the enmity between us and God. And so now we become right with God. And if you have not received Jesus, and how you do that is you repent and believe in Jesus. You, you repent of self-reliance and trust in self and sin and, and, and pride and arrogance. And you say, Jesus There is only one way back to the Father. The first thing that you need to realize is that you need a Savior. And when you realize that, now you you repent and you believe in Jesus. And you say, Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross is the only way back. I must believe. I must place trust and faith in you. You do that, and the Bible says that you become, you are saved. You're born again. Everybody must do that. I don't care if you've grown up in church. I don't care if you have memorized Psalm 119, I don't care, you've got to repent and believe in the gospel and become a child of God. But oftentimes we stop there. The next consequence is is that you become connected to a group of people who are struggling to do life together to be made more and more like Jesus. And so here's my simple question. Are we, are we interdependent? We breathe the air of self-absorption in America. We are rugged individualists. We are frontier pioneer people. We came to the East Coast and our ancestors, our forefathers, conquered the Wild West. And they would line up on a line in the, in the Oklahoma or wherever. And somebody would fire a pistol and they'd run out into the plains. And then Home Slice would stick a stake in the ground and he'd say, this is my acre. Get off of it. And they'd build a homestead. And we're rugged individuals. We hate the, the, the and I think this is a good thing, I'm not against this, but the, we hate government over our backs. And we reject somebody kind of telling us what we can do from a governmental standpoint. And that is good. 
But when we bleed over into our spiritual life, we, reject, we, we can't live like that. Like we can't just be individual Christians who just kind of know a little pocket of people, dart in, dart out, never. Is your name, and listen, this is not a membership. Again, I don't manipulate sermons like, membership, now let's do it. You got, no, but is, I'm talking about spiritually. Is your name on a list? Like who knows you? Who's counting on you? Like if you weren't somewhere, would it, does anything kind of depend on you? You need that. You need that. This church needs that. And I'm not just talking about cross point. The community, you, you need to be obligated. You need to be hooked up. You need to be tied in. It is essential for your soul. Not just so that you can feel good religiously. Because Jesus has saved you for this. For this. I end with this. I read a study recently as this week, and it talked about um, the small group, cell group um, program ministry that's kind of swept the American church in the past 20 years about how it has been really a uniquely American concept where we, like, I guess sometime in the 70s and the early 80s, Churches realized, oh my gosh, we've got to get people together. And Sunday school type ministry was starting to kind of go by the wayside a little bit. And so we realized, hey, we've got, we got to come up with a program to get everybody together in a small group. And by the way, we do that. We call them life point groups here and we do that. But what was really unique is that, is that in this study, they realized that when churches would go into urban areas where there were lots of immigrants or people from other ethnicities other than white, Caucasian, European Americans... They would try and organize like all these pastors and churches, slick uh, suburban churches that have come into the city to try and get all these other cultures, whether they're immigrants or whether they're folks from America, but Latinos or African-American trying, come on, let's do a small group. Let's organize. Let's go. We've got to do community. We've got to be connected with each other. And all of the other cultures other than the European Caucasians are like, you guys are crazy. We're already doing this. Like we don't need like a small group pastor to draw a chart and do some silly little class and train us and then assign us to a group and meet 12 weeks and study this. I mean, we're like, we're already connected because that's the way we live life. But the rugged, individualistic, European, Caucasian Americans had the most trouble with that. And there are some exceptions in here. But y'all are some European, Caucasian, Americans. That's most of y'all, right? That, that is you. That is me. Because we're individual, rugged, self-absorbed people who hate to be obligated to anything. God help us. God help us. By the way, we do small groups here and we run classes to train you how to do it. So when we announce that in a couple weeks about a new small group leader class, don't say, hypocrite. I'm just, I know what I'm talking to. I'm talking to a bunch of Caucasian, European Americans mostly. And we need that help, don't we? But God, break us. Break us from rugged individualism. Here's a few tips. If you're new, fill out one of those little cards. We're not going to ambush you this afternoon with a bag of stale cookies. We're not going to knock on your door and insist that we come in and share with you, you know, for an hour. 
We're going to call you and send you an email and a letter. And we're going to hope you come back next Sunday. And if you don't, now we'll get the idea. We're not stalkers. If you've been coming for a while and like all you do is just hang out with the same group of people, break out of that, man. Break out of that. If you're new and you're timid and you're something that draws you to this place and you just you need a little courage to just kind of go, come on. Let's 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 have a little courage. Break out of that. Meet somebody. Don't go to lunch with the same people all the time. Find somebody you don't know. Maybe they didn't grow up with you. Maybe your kids don't go to the same school. Maybe they're not European Americans. Maybe they're vastly different from you. Come on, guys. When we live lives of joyful interdependence, interdependence, it points people to Jesus. So I'm just going to let the Spirit of God sit on us and lead us as we will. And it's not just a one Sunday thing. I'm going to pray that God does this in us um, as a permanent thing. Well, let's pray. Lord, we need, we need so much more of this. God, we need, um, we need you to shake us out of our ruts and our comfort zones. We breathe the air of self-absorption and individualism. We look down at the end of our nose at people who have failed or who are struggling. And we think that they've made you know, poor decisions and they kind of get what they deserve. And, and so then we kind of retreat to our houses where we have traded huge backyards in for front porches. Because God forbid we sit on the front porch and actually be a community. We've retreated from the cities. We've retreated from the awkwardness of reaching out because it's so much more comfortable just to hang out with the people that are like us. It's so much easier in the short term to not be obligated. It's so much easier not to commit to a church or to a small group or to whatever, to a ministry. To And God, I don't want this to be boiled down to just church commitment. It's so much bigger. It's just so much easier to not really have your name down on anything. And we repent of that, Jesus. We are so selfish. We're rugged individualists. And we're duped into thinking that that is actually the best way to live because if, it was, if we could be honest, we're far more American than we are Christian. And so, God, would you help us? <laughs> Jesus, would you help us? God, there, there's such pride in our culture. Would you help us? Would you get us outside of our little comfort zones? We, I mean, I stare symbolically, God. I, stare, I spend my week staring at my belly button. We all do. Jesus, would we take biblical community so serious that literally we would be saying that, man, if I break, if I walk, if I walk away from you, then let me be cut in two. That doesn't even translate to us, God, because... We live in a Christian buffet where if we don't like something, we can skip to the next church or to the next school. If the teacher doesn't do what we like, we can pull our kids out of that school and go into the next. We, 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 are, we think we have freedom and choice, God, but it's locked us down. It's trapped us into this, this world of blinded self-absorption. 
And so would you lift our eyes above that, God, and would you speak directly to our hearts and would you, God, would you not, would you not make this dependent on me coming up with some example or program, but, but would you, would you, would you cause us to be people that live lives of joyful interdependence? And then would it be like an aroma of Christ that would draw people to Jesus, that would encourage the weak, that would strengthen the fearful, and that would draw the lost for the name and the fame of Jesus. Pray that you'd do this among us. And now, God, as we respond to you in song and communion and prayer, God, convict us. Convict us. Speak directly to us about maybe one thing that we can do in our lives. And then let us have the courage and the discipline to carry through with it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.